Well, good morning. It's good to worship with all of you. Thanks for coming. Before I forget, uh, for all of you that brought shoeboxes for the Cargo of Dreams ministry, uh, we would just like to express our gratitude and say thank you. Thank you for doing that. And Hector is going to uh, read to us the verses today, two of the key verses. We're actually going to be spending time in a larger section of John, but we picked out two verses, and they're in your bulletin in English. Good morning. Everybody's awake, huh? Anybody has a cell phone, please turn it off or... Wait, <laughs> unless they're using it for their Bible. Unless they're using it for your Bible like I am. <laughs> He's getting a little comfortable up here. He's getting a little comfortable. Well, we're going to give you a little lesson in Spanish. I'm going to say the two verses uh, in Spanish first, and then I'll translate them to English. We're going to be reading from John. Chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. Estamos leyendo del libro de Juan, capítulo 7, versos 37 y 38. Pero en el último día y el gran día de la fiesta, Jesús se, pasó, se puso de pie y alzó la voz diciendo, Si alguno tiene sed, venga a mí y beba. El que cree en mí, como dice la Escritura, ríos de agua viva corriendo en su interior. En el libro de Juan, capítulo 8, verso 12, Jesús le habló otra vez a los fariseos diciendo, Yo soy la luz del mundo, el que me sigue nunca andará en la neblina sino que él tendrá la luz de la vida. Now for the English version, and I send your little sheets. Uh, John 7, 13, 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood, stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And John 8, 12, Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Thank you, Hector. How many of you, uh, this is your first Sunday this summer worshiping with us in the amphitheater? Let me see those hands. Okay, all right. We're taking some time in John, as Mark said, and we're uh, asking the question, who is Jesus, really? We titled our, kind of our theme for the summer, Identity Theft. It's my perspective that as I look at what culture has done with Jesus and I look at what uh, the media has done with Jesus, I'm not very comfortable with that. And somehow he's become something different than what the Gospels present him as. So we've taken some time. Each week we're kind of doing a snapshot so let me uh, do a very quick review of some key things that we've discussed for those of you that this is your first Sunday because it weighs in on today. You know, when you look at uh, the direction that culture heads, culture is the world in which we live, all of the processes, uh, the government functions, uh, the social factors, all of those things. Culture, because of the curse, is always leading us in a direction that is uh, unhealthy. It's, 
It's, it's leading us toward destruction, barring uh, intervention on a, on a moral basis. And what happens with the Bible is that the Bible begins the process as God gives his word of turning us away from that direction. So we're moving in a certain direction, and the Bible, as it unfolds, turns us in a very different direction. And so we begin to see things in this book, this wonderful book, which is, by the way, complicated, hard to understand, often challenging, and doesn't make sense sometimes. But in the middle of all that, there's fantastic principles of what life looks like, how to treat one another, things of that nature. And so when Jesus walks on the scene, he does what we see the Bible doing on a large scale, but he does it very personally. What the Bible does, the Bible challenges values every step of the way. Challenges religious values, challenges cultural values. It challenges the values that to us just seem to make sense. Uh, the Bible says murder is wrong. And so I'm thankful for that because um, I think most of the nations in the world today have reasoned that through and said, we agree, murder is wrong. Hasn't always been the case, by the way. We've had lots of tyrants along the way that didn't believe that, didn't agree with that. So the Bible is always challenging values, and Jesus does the same. Let me give you some examples. In uh, John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, when he said turn the, he wanted to turn the water into wine, and he, we expect him to say, go find the empty jars that had the wine in them and bring them to me, and I'll make wine for you. But he didn't do that. He said, go get those six stone jars that the Jews use for purification, the dishpans. Fill those with water and I'll turn those into wine. Why did he do that? Because he is, he is redefining what the purification rites of the Old Testament were about. He's overturning a value. John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He says, to enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. That's overturning a religious value. Because the Jews thought that uh, if you had been born uh, Jewish, you were part of the covenant. And, um, and he's beginning to change that thinking. No, it's more than that. There's something very different out there. John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. The Samaritan woman. He, uh, just when I say the word Samaritan woman, we have overturned two cultural values right there. First of all, you have Jesus, a Jewish teacher, uh, perhaps a rabbi, talking to a Samaritan, that in itself was bad enough, and a woman. And rabbis didn't do that. And so right off the bat, he's, he's challenging cultural values there. But then he brings in the whole idea of that if you trust in him, waters of living, uh, rivers of living water will flow up like a fountain out of you. So there he's challenging a religious value. Last week, the lame man. The pool of uh, uh, Bethesda, we looked at that. Mark brought that to us. And the guy was waiting for 38 years to get in the water. And he's challenging a cultural value there. You don't get healed by getting into the water. And he brings an entirely new perspective. And so everywhere we turn, Jesus is a challenging a value. And he's overturning it. And that's what the Bible does from beginning to end, by the way. Some of those very ancient passages, which are difficult for us to understand... If you understand the value and culture at that time that God is, is redefining, then they begin to make sense. So today we're going to look at John 7 and 8 at the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths, it's called. This is the story that's at the very center, at least as John presents it, of Christ's ministry. 
And so this story doesn't really have a character in it. There's no lame man. There's no Samaritan woman. There's no Nicodemus. There's no uh, none of that. It's just Jesus is in the temple. But yet he's going for the gold. When it comes to overturning cultural and religious values, he's going for a very, very significant stake in the ground. He's going to draw this big line in the sand and he's going to talk to us about life in a very different way than anybody had envisioned up until that time. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or tablets or whatever you have and you want to follow along, at the very end of John chapter 6, we didn't look at John 6, but he had done some very difficult teaching. It's very difficult what he was saying there. And verse 66 says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you want to leave me too? Is that what you want to do? That's a good question. It's a good question for some of you. I've been there where I'm at the point where I'm wondering, do I want to leave Jesus? So for those of you that are on that, that precipice, on that brink, do you want to leave Jesus? Maybe something has happened so badly that it just hurts too deeply. Listen to what Peter says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Fantastic words. Fantastic words. We have the words of eternal life. Even if it doesn't make sense what's happening in life, we have the words of life, don't we, as believers? I believe that. I've said several times, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to tell your friends that you love Jesus and you follow Jesus. We have the words of life. But then look what happens. After this, Jesus went, in Gal- Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. Verse 2, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. I'm jumping down to verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. So he goes to this Jewish festival of tabernacles and he begins to teach. Now, what we're going to do today, we're not going to look at the teachings of Jesus. I know that's unusual in church. You usually look at what Jesus says. We're going to look at uh, two statements that he makes. And what does that mean and how does that impact our lives? There's a lot of teaching down through this chap- these two chapters and they're kind of complicated. It's kind of you scratch your heads thinking, I wonder what he's saying. Well, you're not alone. If you read the response to the people that hurt him, they're scratching their heads, too. So. First of all, what is the Jewish festival of tabernacles? What is that all about? Well, here's the way it was kind of carried out in the city of Jerusalem. It was one of the three festivals that the males from Israel had to gather for to worship together. Three times a year, they had to gather for three festivals. This is one of them. And the Jewish people would move out of their homes and they would move into these, uh, these booths, these tents, these tabernacles. The tabernacle, by the way, is a fancy word for tent. So they move out of their home and they would camp, camp out right there in the city. Why? As a way of remembering what God had done in the 40 years of wanderings when they lived in tents. So I'm going to read... Leviticus 23 to you, where um, God put this festival in place. And listen to what he says. 
But first of all, picture this. We live in a world, let's go back 3,500 years, we live in a world that is dominated by superstition. God is everywhere, everything is a God. A lot of the countries in the world still live by that. If it rains, it must be because the God blessed, God's blessed us. If things go wrong, it must be because the God's cursed us. How do we know our God is more powerful than the God next door? Well, if we attack them and we win the battle, then we know our God is more powerful than their God. Very superstitious world that they lived in. Um, they didn't look to the gods to, uh, for virtue and to emulate as, as examples and all of that. They, their whole thing was, let's just appease the gods. Let's keep them happy. Because the gods are what keep all of this world going, functioning, processing, in order. So the last thing we want is gods that are angry with us. Because everything becomes very disrupted. We lose battles. We become slaves to someone else. And so it's all about keeping the gods appeased and the gods happy. Well, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the one true living God speaks and rescues Israel from Egypt. And listen to what he says in Leviticus 23. So picture that in mind, the context of a world, a very dark world. And then ask yourself, who would I like to serve? Which God? The gods of Egypt or the true God? The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. Seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly Do no regular work. This is at the end of the harvest, when they're already rejoicing because God has blessed them. That's why he timed it right here. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings were in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbath, and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the freewill offerings you have to the Lord. So beginning the 15th day of the seventh month, you have gathered after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. Throw a party. Throw a party. A week long party. Stop working and throw a party. It's amazing. Verse 42, live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. And then in Deuteronomy 16, he adds a little bit more detail to it. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. I love this next line. Be joyful at your festival. Throw a party. Be joyful. You, now listen to the list. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves. The Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate this festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and all the work of your hands. 
Isn't that wonderful? Every God in the world is saying, you don't work hard enough. Work harder. And our God says, throw a party. Our God says, take a break. We'll call that the Sabbath. You rest. And on the Sabbath day, I'll watch over all your crops. I'll take care of your flocks. I'll take care of your families. No marauding army is going to get you. You can rest. Isn't that great? This is unheard of in the history of the world. God didn't say that. No, they said the opposite. You're not hard enough. Work harder. You're not good enough. And our God says, I just love you. I made you. I created you. Throw a party. Have fun. So this festival of booths became a time of great celebration and began to grow as time went by. We have, uh, we have words from some of the rabbis that the music didn't stop for 24 hours a day. Seven days a week. Eight days, because it went eight days, Sabbath to Sabbath. Eight days. There was dancing. There was partying. Okay, pause. Some of you have seen me do this. If we go back into the Old Testament, I'm going to create a timeline. The Old Testament gives us a tangible reality that helps us make sense of true spiritual reality. So what does the New Testament say? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How do we define the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do we look at a Hindu temple? No, I've been there. I hope not. A Buddhist temple? No, I've been there too. No, we step back into the Old Testament and we look at the Jewish temple. And here's one of the things we see. The Jewish temple was the place where all the great festivals occurred. This is where they threw the parties. So therefore, when we move here into the New Testament, and the Lord says we are the the, uh, temple of the Holy Spirit... First question I have to ask you is, are we having fun? Are we throwing parties? Does the world look at us and does the world say, I want to belong to that group because they have something I don't have. They love each other. They care for each other. They laugh and dance. They do all those things. Does the world look at us and do they say that? We're the spiritual temple. They should. Festival of booths. All right. Here's what they had done with a festival of booths during Jesus' time, by the time you get to Jesus. It's a fantastic, fantastic uh, time of celebration. But like all of the great rituals, they had moved them in a direction that didn't really prepare the people for the coming Messiah Jesus. Coming Messiah Jesus. So the first thing they did... They had a, what they called a water libation ceremony. Because what happens in the desert? Now remember, the festival of booths, we're all out in our ta- tents, we're all out here living, out in our front yard, so to speak. The city's, everybody's outside in the city living in booths. What happened in the 40 years of wandering? Do you remember the water issues? You live in a desert, where do you get water? For a whole nation, where do you get water? So we have a couple of recorded stories of Moses striking to the rock, Moses speaking to the rock. Well, he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he actually struck the rock and got in trouble for that, didn't he? So water was a big issue in the desert. At the base of Mount Sinai, God says, tell the, uh, tell the Israelites to um, wash themselves before I introduce myself to them. Where are you going to get all the water to wash an entire nation in the desert? So I'm trying to describe to you, water is a precious commodity anytime. But it's a really a precious, com- uh, precious commodity when you live in the desert. And so God provided by sending them water. He brought water. So in this festival of tabernacles, when we're all living in booths, 
Well, over the years, they incorporated a ritual to remember that God had taken care of their needs. He had blessed them by providing water. And so what would happen on the festival, during the festival, is that um, the priest would go and he would take a golden pitcher and he would go to the pool of Siloam. By the way, we'll see this again. And he would dip the pitcher in the water. Now remember, we're in the city of Jerusalem and there's a whole throng because the whole city's partying. Everybody walks down to watch this and everybody comes back, okay? And then he would offer it, but before he offered it, this water, as a sacrifice to remember what God had done, they would uh, sound the shofar, the trumpets, they would blow the trumpets, and they would read these psalms. I'm not going to read all of them to you because uh, I know you want to get to lunch. But they'd read Psalm 113 to 118. Just listen to these words. I'm going to do you snippets. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Isn't that a great psalm? Not to us, Lord. Here's Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They're remembering what the Lord had done. Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Can you hear the praise? Praise to the one true God. Psalm 117. The whole psalm is only two verses, so I will read this one. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, the men are dancing around the altar at the temple, singing these psalms, because these were originally hymns. I don't know the tunes that they had. I wish I did. One day we will. They're dancing around the altar, singing these hymns, as the priest is carrying the water back. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So they're singing these psalms. And the priest walks up to the temple. And the ritual, as I understand it, as it grew, he would mix wine and water together. And he would pour it over the temple to remind the people of what God had done. We are looking backward. And Jesus cried out, Let anyone come to me if he is thirsty and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. At the very moment that the priest is pouring out this, Jesus stood up. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone 
Who is thirsty, come to me and drink. So you have this ritual being done where the priest is pouring out the water, looking backward, and you have over here on the side, Jesus standing and shouting, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. That takes courage, folks. Because the temple would have been packed. And no one paid attention. They missed it. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. He had just said those words in chapter four to the Samaritan woman. So now we understand what this ritual was all about. Why God began to provide water in the desert to teach them. Same thing at the wedding of Cana. Teach them that they had need of life. They had need of blessing. They had need of cleansing. And one day the Messiah would come and he would bring all of that. Have you been cleansed? Do you have that thirst quenching water? It's kind of an irony. It quenches your thirst and yet makes you thirstier. Doesn't it? If you follow Jesus, it quenches some of the deepest thirst, but it creates within you a hunger and a thirst that you pursue and you keep pursuing. So while he's pouring it out right there in front of all the people, Jesus tells us the truth about what all this means. This is the true God in breaking into our world where we live. Do you know Jesus? Well, the second part of the ceremony was the light ceremony. Because uh, what happened in the 40-year wandering? Remember they had the pillar of light? Pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of light by night. And God would lead them through. And he would protect them and he watched over them. I don't know what it was like, but I guess if you're out in the middle of the desert and uh, this is a young nation and they're just meeting this new God and uh, they're afraid of all the surrounding nations, who's going to attack them, who's going to protect them. There's a light. Maybe it's like a night light that we put in our house for our children so they feel safe. There's a light. Wherever you were in your tent, you could step outside and see this light, this pillar of fire, just quietly burning. God's way of bringing about a sense of protection. I'm here. I'm still here. You can relax. It's okay. So you have this whole light ceremony going on in, a, in John. It commemorated the pillar of fire, but it also commemorated the gift of uh, light. If you look at the very end of the New Testament, that's uh, Malachi. And you back up one, cha- uh, one book to Zechariah 14. Listen to what he says. This is talking about the future. On that day, there will be no sunlight, no cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. We just talked about the living water. And now we have the second part of this incredible Incredible feast where um, the priest would light the menorah candles 
But while he was lighting the candles, the men would once around, once again start dancing around the candle. They would dance around the uh, menorah candles, and they would read another series of psalms. Again, I won't read all the psalms. These are longer. But I'm going to read you snippets out of them. Starting in Psalm 120, these are called the Psalms of Ascent. These are the psalms that they would lead, sing as a nation when they went to the temple to praise God and worship. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Capture the need there. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 122, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. This is where the tribes go up to worship the Lord. Psalm 123, I lift my eyes to you, to who... To you who sit enthroned on heaven. As the slaves look at the hand of their master, uh, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Get the idea? These psalms are crying out for help. Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are Mount, Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Our God protects us. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. In other words, there was a time when our fortunes weren't restored, and it took the Lord to do that. Psalm 127. You all know this one. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. It's right smack in the middle, pleading with God, help us. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. Psalm 128. Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David. And all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. And made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. David made a lot of mistakes, didn't he? Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. That's the final psalm. That's the psalm. All the psalms are crying out for God's mercy and help. And the last one says, we praise you, God. We stand in your temple. And we raise our hands and we worship you. That's what they did when they did the light. Because the light symbolized God's clarity. They could see things. He symbolized, it symbolized his protection. He never left them. Even when they were asleep, he's standing there. Watching them. Is this a great festival or what? Isn't it a great festival? And it made them look back. So while the men were singing these psalms, pretend it's lit. (laughs) And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So once again, the priest is lighting the menorah candles in the center of attention with all the people around him. And off to the side, Jesus is shouting, I am the light of life. They missed it. It's a fantastic festival. It's a fantastic festival. The problem is it caused them to look back. And what Jesus does is he begins to make us look forward. Because now we begin to realize that as the kingdom emerges in our world, as it begins to rise and surface, what we discover is that the kingdom is uh, you and me. The kingdom is you and me. Because we have the spirit indwelling us. And that's what Jesus says. We're going to celebrate communion in just a little bit. In fact, I'd like to invite the uh, communion workers to the servers to come on up and those who are going to pray. Um, Jesus is the true light, replacing the Jewish festival of light. And Jesus is the true thirst quencher, replacing the festival of water, the ritual of water. Before I invite you up for communion, let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to move into your world, if he were to move into your life, how would you recognize him? How would you recognize him? Maybe he's tapping on the shoulder. You ever get that feeling that he's there just tapping on the shoulder? Maybe you know the Lord and maybe it's a dark time. I've been there. I lost the wife, my first wife. I remember the darkness. Scared, terrified, lonely. Had no idea what was going to happen. And I just heard this whispering out of the shadows. It's tapping. But if I back up a few years before that, even before I came to know the, I mean, before I came to know the Lord, I had this sense for, for three years, I had this sense that somebody was just tapping me on the shoulder, moving toward me. I laugh now because... As I got closer to the time when I actively placed my faith in Jesus, I had these conversations with him. If you really exist, then I really want to know. How do you have a conversation with somebody that doesn't exist? So I look back on it and I laugh and I realize that was a journey. Tap, tap, tap. If Jesus were to move in your life, how would you know? We just witnessed incredible festival. And almost everyone missed it. Even when he shouted at the top of his lungs. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. I am the light of the world. By the way, what we do here at communion is in a sense what they were doing at the Festival of Booths. We're celebrating. This is the time when the community comes together right here and we celebrate and we enjoy the Lord Jesus. We experience him. We enjoy each other. We celebrate. This is one of those times where we as a church have fun. Now, I don't want to diminish the reflective piece of it. I know many of you come from traditions where, where communion is highly reflective. And I, I respect that. I, I love that. And I really want you to focus on who Jesus is. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. So when you come down to receive communion, think about who Jesus is. Jesus said that every time we break the bread and we, we drink the cup... We proclaim his death until we come, right? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, 
This is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. So when you come, we're going to serve. This is the bread, the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. If you have something that you'd like to pray for, for those of you that are down here that are praying, raise your hands. Let me see you. Just go ahead and raise them. If uh, Spanish is your first language, Hector here would love to pray with you. But uh, come and pray with these folks. Maybe you have a praise you'd like to share with them. Something that God has done. You just got to tell somebody. Oh, I've been there. Tell one of us. We love it. Maybe you have a need. Maybe you're really hurting in a very practical, significant way. Maybe we could help you. Tell us about that. Maybe you're on the journey and you're not sure where you are with Jesus. We'd love to have a conversation. We love talking about Jesus. Maybe today you experience Jesus in a new and fresh way. Tell us that as well. Let me pray for you and then come receive communion. Father, we are, um, we are grateful, Lord, that uh, you have done this. You died on the cross for us. Lord, we are grateful. Father, help us to serve you well. Help us to love you well. Help us to remember your death uh, until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. So come on down and receive communion. And if the Lord has put it on your heart, we have places for you to give. And we are grateful for you. Say